Well, on April 13, 1970, there were five words that were uttered by uh, Jack Swigert, who was one of the three men in the Apollo 13 crew that were etched into the collective memory of our culture. And those words were actually, Houston, we've had a problem. And those uh, words were echoed by Jim Lovell, the commander, mission commander. Houston, we've had a problem. The words were adapted for the movie into the present tense because it just sounds more exciting to say, Houston, we have a problem, right? But as many of you know from your own history, how many of you were born in 1970, by the way? That's frightening. Wow, okay. I mean, not in 1970, but we're on the planet. Yeah, okay, that, that's a little better. <laughs> Suddenly feeling really old. So 1970, <laughs> wow. Uh, where was I? Uh, oh, yeah, these guys, uh, so these guys were part of a three-man space uh, crew in the Apollo 13 spacecraft that was hurtling toward the moon at uh, 24,000 miles an hour because that's escape velocity of the Earth. Everybody knows this, right? Okay, because there's going to be a quiz later, so make sure you get this stuff. They had, uh, what happened was they had a, uh, a bus main undervolt, which I hate it when that happens, don't you? <laughs> especially when you're going so fast in a frigid vacuum 200,000 miles away from home. I hate it when that happens. AAA won't come, <laughs> as it turns out. And this undervolt somehow caused a problem in one of the oxygen tanks that caused it to explode. This is bad when your oxygen is what you're depending on to get back to Earth, right? So not only did they probably not have enough oxygen, they definitely not to complete the mission with the moon landing and stuff, but they, they didn't know if they had enough to come back with. And then, uh, but the other thing that happened was with the explosion of this tank on the outside of the spacecraft that it seriously hampered the maneuverability of the craft. So you saw the movie, right? Anybody? Yeah, okay. So you know how this goes, right? They had a problem. They had a very serious problem that caught the attention of the world. Now, their problem just wasn't that they were stuck in this predicament, but their problem was that that spacecraft was their only way home. There wasn't another option. There was only one option, and that was that spacecraft. There wasn't another one that was going to come and pick them up. There was nowhere they could go. It was that or nothing. Kind of reminds me of John chapter 6 in the Bible that we've been looking at over the last few weeks together. It says that with Jesus, it's either Jesus or nothing. There aren't any other options. It's Jesus or nothing. I want to finish up our talking about John chapter 6 today. We've been working on it for the last few weeks and I'm going to take a break, and uh, actually next week, Pastor Mark Pierce, who's a part of our congregation, he's a, uh, he's a hospice pastor by vocation, but he and his wife Joni have been a part of our church for a long time. Joni's the one I ran the half marathon with, remember? Yeah, okay, so, uh, and uh, uh, Mark will be bringing the message next week. He's a good Presbyterian guy and loves the Lord, and so you'll get some, maybe some good Calvinism mixed in with my whatever the heck I am, okay? So, um, but you'll enjoy him. He's the guy who asked me the question from that passage a few weeks ago, was the Greek word ice, was it ace or was it n? And it really made a big difference in that whole thing about believing into Jesus. And so he'll be here next week, and then two weeks from today, drum roll please, 
your new associate pastor, Paul Morris, will be bringing the message, okay? So you'll, you'll, you'll enjoy that, I'm very sure. So um, that's what's going to happen. Then hopefully I'll be back, good Lord willing, and the crick don't rise, uh, the first weekend, uh, first Sunday of September. So, uh, but what I'd like to do today is just continue through John chapter 6 um, and see what, we can, uh, see what we can discover here. As we move through this, remember where we are up to now by way of context. Jesus, uh, he had just recently fed 5,000 men and their families with five loaves and two fish. That was a big day. He sent the disciples on ahead. Instead of needing a boat to catch up, what did he do? Walked on the water, caught up, he got to the other side. The crowds that had come by boat or somehow saw that he was there, and what did they ask? How'd you get here? When did you get here? Well, how do you, I don't need a boat. I walk on water. I'm Jesus. And so they said, that's pretty amazing. And uh, they said, well, and Jesus said, yeah, but you didn't really come to me for the miracles. You came for me. I'm the bread of life. He said, you came for me. You came because of something that I have to give you, not just amaze you with my ability to do miracles. So this is where we are so far. And remember, Jesus said, do not work for food that spoils but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. This is all in this chapter. And so that these people are going, oh, oh, okay, how do we work for God then? And Jesus said, well, this is the work that God requires. What was it? To believe in the one he has sent. Very good, Marie, you may go. (laughs) To believe in the one he has sent. That's the whole work of it right there. It's to release our faith into Jesus Christ the only begotten Son of God, what He did for us on the cross, how He conquered the grave, ascended to the Father. It's to believe. That's the work. Everything else flows from there. We can't work our way into good standing with God. We can't work our way into blessing from God. The work, Jesus said, that God requires is this, is to believe in the one He has sent, Jesus Christ. In, not about Not simply the recitation of a creed or a thought or a concept, not about, not just believe about the story of Jesus, but to believe in him. And we looked at that and to throw ourselves into him, to surrender our lives into him, to surrender the the nature, the direction, the quality of our lives into the hands of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the word of God. And, and, And this is our lives. So it's not a component of our lives. It's our life, right? It's your life now. Jesus is your life. And so we've come this far, and um, then, you know, they were kind of saying, well, you know, when Moses was here, he brought us manna from heaven. Can you, can you do anything like that? Anything cool like that? And Jesus said, well, i got good news and bad news. The bad news is Moses didn't give you that bread. The good news is I did. Jesus said, I was behind the whole thing. Because I am What? I am the bread of life. Now you may go. Okay? Now I am the bread of life. That's what he said. Because it's me that you want. It's not a, I'm not a trick pony. It's not a demonstration of my power that will really feed you. It's me. It's me. Now we're all about the demonstrations of God's power here. That's fantastic. But we can't substitute that for the essential relationship that we have with God the Father through his son Jesus Christ. In the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this is where we are so far. And they said, so, sir, from now on, give us this bread. And Jesus said, I will. And whoever eats this bread, whoever conducts themselves in the manner of a relationship with me, will never go hungry. And you'll never be thirsty. Because he said in another place, the streams of living water will just swell up from within inside of you. 
Okay. Well, at this, the Bible says the Jews began to grumble. Well, imagine. Imagine. Of course they would grumble. This is like way outside of their worldview. This isn't what they expected Messiah to be, plus they weren't even recognizing him as such. This is just a rabbi, a rabbi talking crazy, right? And so it says the Jews began to grumble. Who is this guy? He says in verse 41, saying, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And Jesus said in verse 43, stop grumbling uh, among yourselves. No one can come to him unless, come to me unless the Father draws him and I'll raise him up at the last day. You know, it's the Father who's drawing you to God. You know, you know that, that stirring you have inside of you that's just so hungry for God? You know what I'm talking about? I mean, that's why you're here today. You're not here this morning because you didn't have anything else to do. You didn't get rained off at the golf course, so you decided to come here, right? Right? <laughs> you were, you were, bad, bad choice of illustration. You're here because you were drawn here. There's some kind of stirring, some kind of, some kind of thing that you want. And God, Jesus said that God the Father draws you, draws you. By the power of the Holy Spirit, just draws you to himself. And you can't get away from that. How many of you have tried? Me too, I know. And you just keep getting drawn back. So this is what's going on so far. And then, uh, um, you know, it says that Jesus is the bread of life. That he has done this thing for us so that he has really solved an amazing problem for us. And the problem that Jesus Christ has solved for us is this. Is that Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him we have redemption. Read that with me if you can. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That is the solution to a huge problem, right? We have this problem of sin. We have this problem of separation from God. We have this problem, and we're still hungry for him, and something has to remedy that. And so the problem that Jesus solved for us by his blood, it says, by his sacrifice, by the giving of his body on the cross, is redemption, is that rescue operation that Jesus has provided for us as I've come to get you out of that predicament and put you back into right relationship with God the Father, which is what you're created for, but has been broken for all generations. And so Jesus solved that problem. Are you glad? I don't know, maybe you're here today and you're hearing this for the first time, and you're just struck with a sense of the weight of your sin. If you'd like to have that, that weight lifted off of you, it's a matter of personally turning toward Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross, it can be a, such a cathartic kind of thing just to come to him and just give your life to Jesus. So if you're getting that stirring inside of you, the Father is drawing you to be a recipient of that. How many of you are grateful that you're already a recipient of that, right? That's pretty cool stuff. So Jesus solved this enormous problem. But then he kind of created another one, so it would seem. Because remember, through this whole thing, Jesus is saying what? He's saying, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And remember how last week we were connecting that I am stuff with the Hebrew word Yahweh? I am. So when Jesus says, I am something, it's a revelation of the character of God. And he's saying, I am. This is what was making the Jews so nervous 
is because he was saying, I am. I am, and I am, I am come down from heaven. I am. And so they're getting really nervous. And so it's kind of like, Houston, we have a problem. Like we have this vessel that claims to be the solution for our problem, and yet the oxygen tank just exploded because he says he's God. I am come down from heaven. So in verse 52, it says, Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves um, because he had said that unless we eat of his flesh, that we can't be a part of him. Uh, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Well, then Jesus really brings it. I mean, he really ups the game here in what he says next. So it's already bad because he's doing the I am thing, right? He's already got everybody offended. But he says, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Boom! What? Why did Jesus say stuff like this? Eat his flesh and drink his blood. You're all calm right now because you have the benefit of 2,000 years of church history looking back and saying, well, he was talking about the institution of the Lord's Supper, right? But remember, this happened before that last Passover meal. Between whatever space of time it was and this, until Jesus in that last Passover supper said, took the bread of the Passover and said, this is my body broken for you, and took the cup, one of the cups, and said, this is my blood shed for you. Can you imagine what a relief that must have been that day for those guys? (laughs) Because all this time they're thinking, what does he mean we have to eat his flesh and drink his blood? Are you getting this? Are you feeling it? They had to live all that time going, oh, I hope to God today isn't the day we have to eat him. (laughs) Because that's what he said, right? I would have had no other context for understanding that. So we sit here all calmly going, wow, what he was talking about, they didn't know. They couldn't have known. And so this was a big problem for Jesus to be talking this way. And uh, it said in verse 59, he said this while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. He said this in church. He wasn't just out on the countryside airing his opinions. He was the teaching rabbi. He spoke it as an official in church. It would have offended the ears of everybody in there. He said something bad in church. Can you imagine? You can't say something bad in church, can you? Well, Jesus did. He said, I am... And unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And he offended everybody in the place. Oh, it gets worse. (laughs) So on hearing it, many of his disciples were grumbling. Or on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Understood, right? Understood. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Had a little bit of a British accent. I don't, I don't know where that came from exactly. Does this offend you? <laughs> I'm quite sure he didn't sound anything like that. <laughs> I don't know where that stuff comes from. <laughs> I 
I'm quite sure Pastor Paul is actually sane, so good news for you, okay? Balance me out. Does this offend you, he said? So the flesh and blood thing, does this offend you? He said, what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? He said, you want to be offended? What if I just raised up to heaven? How would that be? Now, they didn't know anything about the resurrection at this point. Just trying to sort all these Old Testament things out. It says, the Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. So when it says the disciples started grumbling, let's keep in mind something. Jesus was a rabbi, and he collected his immediate school of the 12 disciples. We've been over this many times. And then around the school was another group of people. The 12 he chose, the group chose him. Right? You get that? So the 12 he chose, the group seemed to have chosen him. So they said, that guy's cool. I'm going to follow that guy and see what happens. Well, then when he starts talking like this, it's the outer ring of disciples that starts murmuring and grumbling because they're offended. Because, because they, were struck, they, were, they were struck with a decision. Because as they approached Jesus as a rabbi, as committed Jews, what they would have said is, how does this rabbi enrich my life as a Jew? How can I, in other words, how can I fit this Jesus fellow into my religion? And Jesus was coming and saying, I don't fit into anybody's pocket. I'm not a trick pony. And I've actually come to fulfill your religion and start a revolution. So there's quite a difference. And so these people were beginning to grumble. And he said, some of you, there are some of you here who do not believe. So it's possible to be in the ring of people around Jesus and yet not believe. Right? It's possible to be in the crowd and not believe have come to a place yet of belief where you enter into Christ as we saw earlier in one of the teachings. He said, For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and would betray him. He went on to say this, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. Catch this next one. From this time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. So many of the outer ring disciples said, I'm out. I can't do that. All of the religious upbringing is talking to them. Perhaps there were other rabbis who were talking to them, saying, stay away from that guy. Stay away from that Jesus guy. He's dangerous. He's dangerous. But there were many, it says, who turned back and no longer followed him. I'm out. And then he turned to the 12. The 12 chosen, the fishermen and the tax collectors. The 12 who had been passed over by every other respectable rabbi because these guys weren't cream of the crop. These guys were now apprenticing and fishing or doing tax collecting. They were just rank and file people like you and me. And he looked at the 12 in verse 67 and he says, You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered, Huh. Always ready with something to say. And he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
you have the words of eternal life. Where else would we go? You're the one. He says, we believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. This was revealed to Peter in another place. Jesus said that was revealed to you by the Father. Where are we going to go, he said. Jesus looked at the twelve and said, do you guys want to leave too? And by implication, Peter goes, actually, yes. Because this just got really weird with the flesh and the blood thing. But where would we go? You're the only one that has the words of life. There's nobody else coming. There's nobody else coming to rescue. We are stuck. Because there's nobody else who can do the thing that we need to have done. And this creates a problem, doesn't it? In our pluralistic culture, this creates a problem. This whole business about Jesus who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, on one hand, this is an amazing thing, isn't it? That, that we pick the right one. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, the Bible says. Now, we are all sons and daughters of the living God, but we're not begotten. We're adopted by the blood of the only begotten one. So Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, the only Son of God that proceeded from God in that way. And we are freely invited into the family of God by His grace. That's the stirring that you get by that grace that's greater than your sin that calls you in. And the blood of Christ comes and justifies you. And we have redemption through His blood. And so we have full access to the Father, but we're not like Jesus. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. But we are all fully embraced by the Father as those he has rescued by the blood of his Son. This creates a problem, though, doesn't it? This Jesus being the only way. You know a lot of well-intentioned people who don't believe that. And it breaks your heart. I mean, on one hand, this is great because we have, can have confidence in our salvation, Yes? I mean, we just have this glorious assurance that we're saved by the right one. That we're saved by the only one. And so that brings a powerful sense of assurance. The uniqueness of Christ. He is truly unique in all that is, all that has ever been, all that has ever will be. Jesus Christ is truly a unique thing. And the fact that we have redemption through this unique creation, this unique emanation from God is truly a great thing and it gives us great confidence. It should. But there's something else about the exclusivity of the gospel. The uniqueness of Christ that I have to lay on you this morning. And it's hard. I've been up since 3.30 this morning just laboring in prayer saying, I don't want to say that. I don't want to, I don't want to say that. I said, no, I won't say that. But if I don't say it, where will we be? And if I don't say it, 
It'll be the first time in my ministry I didn't say what I felt the Lord was saying to say. But Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Make a way for your word to fall on the right hearts. Without judgment, without... So the direction I was getting from the Lord is this is great, this exclusivity of the gospel. So long as it doesn't draw us into a place of arrogance and self-righteousness. And that there's a dangerous thing happening in the church today and in the political scene in America. There is so much fear in our culture now, isn't there? Because of things that have happened. There's so much fear, and it's in the church. There's so much fear that it's like dry straw just waiting to be lit. And it's, it's fuel for the enemy's confusion. And one of the things that's insidiously happening in the church is a kind of self-righteousness that's growing out of the exclusivity of the gospel that says, well, we're the saved ones and they're not. We're the saved ones and they, whoever they are, are not. And certainly those terrorist fellows and everybody who looks like a terrorist fellow or even resembles anybody who looks like a terrorist fellow is not. And then the fuel of fear feeds a judgment and a self-righteousness. It's a defensive thing that's happening and we're, we're, we're putting up this wall as the church, and we're saying, well, we're saved, and I'm grateful that I'm saved, all of that. And as far as those other people, those terrorists, well, at least those bastards are going to hell when they die, right? At least they're going to hell. They'll get theirs. Some of you right now may be struggling more with the fact that I said bastards in church than the fact that billions of people are going to hell. According to this teaching. Who else can we go to? And so the fear incites this kind of prejudice and judgment. So you're, the elevator door opens up and a couple of women step out in what appears to you some kind of Muslim garb. And you take a step back, right? There's a little voice that says, at least you're saved. Or God forbid you should get on a, an elevator and a couple Muslim women or men step on. And you take a step back. And it's a judgment. It's an insidious, defensive judgment that says, I'm in, they're out, and they're going to get theirs. Or maybe you see you encounter a gay couple in your life, and you go, there's something inside of your brain that goes, they couldn't possibly be saved. They couldn't be Christian. And because you find that lifestyle reprehensible, you go, they'll, they'll see someday. They're going to get theirs. 
Maybe it's a family member. It's that obnoxious member of your family who is always in your face about being a Christian. Do, anybody? Don't raise your hands. <laughs> and they're always just taking that opportunity to kind of get up in your, your space and go, Are you serious? All the church wants is your money. That Jesus hodgepodge. And then you get worn down after a while, don't you? And you just go, oh, God, someday they're going to get it. It's a defensive thing. It's a defensive posture. But it's the enemy using the, the dry straw of fear and judgment to start a fire that castrates the church. Because the response is not judgment and separation, but love, right? Hello? How can we come to this place and you're a good, good father? And then go out. I was the first one to find Christ in my family. I was a young adult. I went back to my home and I was not raised in the church. I didn't really know which way to hold the Bible yet, but I was really excited about the Lord and was telling, telling the parents and the siblings about Jesus. My brother, who's five years older than me, was my hero because he was a heroin addict and hate Ashbury. And I wanted to be just like him when I grew up. I only got halfway there with weed, but you know. <laughs> but he was my hero. But at this point, things had changed. I didn't realize he had involved himself in a satanic cult. I had no idea of this. So I just kept telling him about Jesus. And it was one Halloween night, go figure, that he looked at me and he said, if you ever mention your effing Jesus to me again, I'm going to kill you. That was our opportunity to go, you know, someday he's going to get you. Someday he's going to know. Boy, he just crossed the line. But Karen and I were both puppies in the faith with nobody to show us the way, really. And so we just felt led to do something in response to that threat. My brother lived in a little cabin he had built in the backwoods of Michigan, and he heated with wood. Now, anybody who's ever heated with wood knows it's a full-time job to keep your wood pile up, especially in Michigan, right? It's a big deal. And so what we did was, I had a pickup truck and a chainsaw, so Karen and I would drive around, and when we saw a limb that had fallen into a ditch, we'd just get out and throw it in the back of the truck. And we would just go when my brother wasn't home, and we would just put it on his wood pile. We did that for two years. <laughs> Jim's not home, let's go. And he just mysteriously, his woodpile is replenishing. It's like manna. We, we barely spoke. He would barely speak to me. Well, we finished college and went off to seminary. And in seminary, our first year there, 
got a Christmas card from him, which was really out there because he hated Christmas. <laughs> it was a regular Christmas card. On the inside was a greeting, and he wrote on the bottom, I guess you guys were right all along. Jim. Turns out he had fallen in with some charismatic hippies. Got himself, got himself baptized in a very cold Michigan creek. That, those take, I'll tell you, I was baptized in one of them myself. Those take. You don't want to ever repeat your baptism when you're baptized in a cold creek in Michigan. You never doubt it. This is our response, beloved. It has to be our response. Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. If you have clever sounding arguments, if you have fine, justified judgments, what do you say? What do you say, church? Maybe some of you don't know. This is one that it's part of that class about God is good all the time, right? This one we know. Jesus said this, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. So, Father, we invite you to come now. Invite you to come and uh, do the work that only you can do. This isn't our service. It never was. This was you from the beginning. And I pray, God, that these words and songs and Everything that's happened in here, as we have perceived with our senses, has somehow given you a, a way to come in and touch our hearts. Lord, we want to be different. We want to be different than we were when we woke up this morning. I want to have my first perfect day today, Lord. I want to have my heart softened so that I don't judge people from any outside. I may have worked through a lot of the obvious stuff, but what about the subtle stuff, Lord? It causes me to take a step backwards instead of lean forward into the people that you place in my path. Would you come, Holy Spirit, and bring us to a place of release from fear and from judgment? Bring us into that place of surrendered humility to believing in you so that we can be so useful in your hands as agents of your love and rescue to those who are lost and perishing. We rejoice in our salvation, Lord. We truly do rejoice in it, and we're truly grateful that you have stirred that in us. You have stirred a, a belief, a faith, a humble surrender, a confession in us. I just pray for everybody here today, God, that you'd meet us equally where we are. Some of us think we're really close to you, and some of us think we're really far away from you, but it has to be all the same for you. And so I just invite your presence here in our time of responding to you so your Holy Spirit can be free to just move powerfully and authentically among us, God. I just feel like I want to say to you guys that if there's anybody here who resonates with some of this stuff and maybe you're 
You know, maybe you're fear-based, you know, and you're just like so worried about all this stuff. Or maybe you're, maybe you do dial into that arrogance and you're going, ah, I'm a judger. Or if there's some, just anything about this that you say, you're just sitting there going, God, would you change that about me? I'd like to pray with you. So if you're just feeling stirred in any way from this and saying, I, I, I want God to change that thing about me, would you just come up here now? You can do what you like when you get here. You can stand, you can sit, you can kneel, whatever's comfortable, whatever's natural for you. Just come up and pour your heart out to God. You can tell him, you know, it's really between you and God. I don't want to get in the way. You can tell him, express your heart about what you want to be different. Paul has a word for us too. Yeah, when I got here today, Tom just asked if spent some time walking outside and praying and just see if God had anything. And, and he spoke clearly right away. Um, Susan and I went to Walmart yesterday. You know, what else are you going to do on a Saturday night when you're new? Um, and we went up to the cashier, and Susan said hi, and the girl looked up and. Like deer in a headlight for three or four seconds, like nobody had ever said hi to her before. And she's like, Yeah, it's a it's end of my shift. What a crazy day. And we're like, Yeah, us too. And and she smiles. And God was basically just saying that there are a lot of people here that you've felt hidden for a long time. God hasn't forgotten about you. I felt like that. And I'll share about that in a few, you know, a couple weeks. A long season of, God, are you ever going to use me again? What's going on? I promise you, God has not forgotten about you. He truly loves you and he cares about you. And he deeply longs for you to come to him. He's always there. He's never going to let you down. Just like we were singing today, ever. And so if that's you today, either where you're at, or if you'd like to come up front, it's just a sign of, yeah, Lord, that's me. I feel like you've passed over me. Yeah, there is a place here for you to receive prayer, to just stand or where you're at. And so, Father, I just pray today for anybody who has felt overlooked, who feels hurt and forgotten. And, Lord, we know your deep love for us. And so I ask that you would remind us of that because we forget. We, we get scared. We, we forget what your word says. And so, Lord, we just thank you that you are good, that you're a good, good father. You're not a bad father. You've got good things for us. So there is a place for you today. And I just pray that in Jesus' name.